Hello, everybody, and welcome to Typhoon Talks, a podcast by Typhoon Consulting, a boutique management consultancy headquartered in Hong Kong. My name is Michael Grady. I am a consultant here with the firm, and today we are joined by a whole group of, uh, of new guests, including who you've known before, Chen Yang. Welcome, Chen. Hello, everyone. Uh, another old returner, David Powell, our APAC CEO. Hi, guys. And then two of our wonderful interns, Freya Easton and Eve. Welcome, guys. Hi, everyone. Hiya. So today we're going to be kicking off our new monthly news uh, rundown where we take some hot topics from around different industries, technology, financial services, startups, uh, what have you, some big headlines around the around the world um, in the sectors that our firm follows, and just kind of toss them around and discuss the the ins and outs of, of each of the pieces of news, what we think about them, what we think the indications of these pieces of news are for the greater trends in some of these sectors. Uh, so we're going to be, today, just really quickly, we're going to be talking about, obviously, Bitcoin, as that's on top of everybody's mind recently. Um, Amazon Go's new technology that they have uh, recently implemented in some of their retail stores. And then Frey is going to take us through some interesting developments in the uh, biotech and pharma sector with some uh, cancer, recently released cancer research. And we're going to start off with Amazon Go with uh, David. So Eve, Amazon has just launched Amazon Go, its automated grocery store, and uh, to great fanfare and also some queues. Um, so you swipe into the store, grab your groceries and leave, um, and your receipt arrives to the app on your phone a few seconds later with your Amazon account charged. So let's explore what kind of technologies are involved in this um, to achieve the no lines, no checkouts, no registers. So Amazon have dubbed this Just Walkout technology and they claim it uses the same technologies that self-driving cars use. So that's computer vision, sensor fusion, and deep learning technology. Essentially, they've got loads of monitors that can track movement of products and customers, as well as cameras sort of in the ceiling, which also track those movements. Um, however, this technology did take them four years to, to develop. And in um, typical Amazon style, they've been pretty vague other than those three elements in explaining what exactly the technology is. So obviously this is the first store. Um, I think they've used it internally at uh, some of their in-house stuff, but it's still very much at the proof of concept stage externally for, for, the, for the paying public. But if we look at you know, other large retailers, maybe Walmart in the, in the US um, and some of the, the larger ones in the UK, many stores have started to look at automation um, to increase service efficiency, but also it frees up uh, space in store to sell more products. So what are the major changes that we're, we're seeing in the retail environment at the moment and, and in previous years? So especially in the kind of grocery store, convenience store segment of the retail industry, um, all the major changes are going towards um, removing cashes, removing checkouts and making it a much faster, quicker experience for the customer. And in turn, this reduces labor overheads and store capacity, as you mentioned, David. And of course, the kind of frictionless spending means customers can spend much more easily and much more. There's a um, convenience store in China called Bingo Box, which has adopted similar technology to Amazon that's 
has absolutely no employees at all versus Amazon who claim they haven't got any less employees than um, traditional retailers because they've sort of replaced all the roles with jobs in, um, in kind of monitoring the technology and things like that. So let's pick up on that a, a bit more. So obviously one of the, the big concerns with, with AI um, globally is the impact that will have on, on the workforce. People are, are, are talking about AI and, and automation as being the fourth industrial revolution. You, know, you, you talked about the fact that we're taking people off the shop floor at Amazon and potentially putting them into more analytical and insight roles. But what do you see as the major trends, particularly in the retail industry over, over the coming 10 years? So in terms of um, in terms of stores, I don't think that this kind of total replacement of cashiers will um, proliferate through the entire industry. As I mentioned, it, I think it will only be at this level because you're never going to go into even a premium grocery store or or a premium brand and not expect to have any customer service and that kind of peak moment at the end of your journey where you said buy to and you pay if you're making a much larger payment you want that to be an experience um, but I do think the function of stores is going to have to change if brick and mortar is going to um, survive over e-commerce so stores we may see stores becoming more of a showroom more of an experiential area a place where people can um, get to know the brand and understand the brand rather than um, rather than a transactional place. So you might see stores becoming more of the kind of emotional side of the brand and a lot of transactions may happen online or you'll be able to order your goods in store but they'll be delivered to your home. Um, yeah, and you, you are kind of seeing that showroom, showrooming, let's call it, happening um, with a couple of the big brands and it means that they can actually it's cost efficient because they can um, store less stock in store so there's less inventory risk. And it's, I always find it's kind of ironic that this is Amazon doing this given that in the late 1990s it was Amazon who disrupted the US um, bookstore mm. market mm. and now we're coming full circle to them actually. They have a bookstore, bookstore of their own now. Yeah exactly. Yeah. exactly. A retail bookstore of their exactly. own. Exactly so I think I think you're right in terms of it's that experiencing the brand. Otherwise, yeah. everybody just experiences the Amazon brand through a website or an app. And now people, as you can see from the queues outside, that people are ex uh, people are excited about trying this new experience out. Okay, so let's wrap it up there for for, for Amazon Go and 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 move over to Kansas Seek. So so Chen and Fred. Yeah, so next we're going to look at a new cancer detection technology called um, Cancer Seek. And it says that with a single blood test, you can detect over 70% of eight major cancers at a cost of only 500 US dollars. So Freya, can you first tell us how, did, how does this technology work? So basically what they've done is they can detect um, 16 different mutations uh, in DNA and proteins in your blood. So this is the DNA and proteins released from cancerous cells, um, which is something they haven't been able to do before, so which is why this technology is so so much of a breakthrough. Alright, so um, is it much more advanced than all the existing technologies? Effectively, yes. They have been able to detect mutated DNA in uh, the blood before, um, but 
it's the fact that they can detect proteins as well, that they can kind of have a much broader scope um, and be much more kind of accurate. Um. It says that it um, can detect 70% of um, eight major types of cancers. Is that a very high accuracy rate? It is high. It's much higher than the kind of tests that are on the market at the moment. So currently there are blood testing techniques, so things like um, they test your complete blood count, which is basically where they take a range of, they do a range of tests on your blood to work out if there's any abnormalities. They can test your blood proteins, they can test for tumour markers, so kind of chemicals that are released into your blood by tumour cells, so a similar sort of principle. Um, but they're either very broad, so test just for general inflammatory markers, or they're very specific, so they test for a specific um, protein or chemical in your blood. Whereas, um, and they, they tend to be quite accurate, they can, they can detect those specific things, but what makes this test unique is it detects 70% of eight different major cancers, um, which is both very broad and pretty accurate. So 70% is obviously an average number. Mm -hmm. um, it can be higher for some type of cancer and can yeah. be much lower for other types. So when we put this technology into practice, what does that mean? So it means we should just be careful when we're looking at kind of specific examples. So the test is actually able to give some information about where the cancers are. So in I think 83% of cases, the, the test is able to narrow down where the tumour is um, to one of two locations, which is pretty exciting in itself. It means that like further investigations are much easier to do. And how about different stages of cancer? Mm -hmm. So it's much more accurate at later stages, which makes sense because there'll be yeah. more um, of the mutated DNA and proteins in the blood if the cancer is larger or if the cancer has spread. The reason this test is, is seen as being so exciting is because it could potentially detect at the early stages of cancer. So instead of having to find the tumour itself or, or the cancer having to be symptomatic, we just do this test as a routine. But actually it only detects 40% of stage 1 cancers, um, which brings into question like how useful this test is going to be um, when it's kind of rolled out um, as a clinical tool. So yeah. what you're basically saying is that this, while this test is extremely accurate, it only tests very, or only picks up very late stages of cancer? Yeah, to a certain extent, it does pick up early stages, but at a much lower accuracy. So it's much more useful for detecting late stage cancers, which is definitely useful for cancers that tend to be non-symptomatic and tend to be, tend to be non-visible. So like pancreatic cancer, um, which is not coincidentally associated with really high mortality. Interesting. So what, what's, your, what's your view on it? Is it? Does it have a place in the, the cancer testing kind of realm of, of treatments and, and, and uh, therapies and things? Or is it just kind of one of the same of what they have already? I think it definitely has a place. I think they need to develop the technology more. 70% accuracy isn't, although it sounds high, it isn't as high as it potentially could go. Uh, they only test for 16 different mutations. I think that they, if they rolled it out to more, they could get a wider scope of different cancers. Um, and it could be applied to other different cancer types. Um, but in terms of the technology itself, it's pretty groundbreaking. Great. If you look Very at good. the right, um, you said 70 is the average, and mm -hmm. in first uh, earlier stage, it's only 40%. Yeah. That means 60% of people, they have cancer, but they might not go for a further diagnosis. Yeah. And that could be a da very dangerous for those who potentially have cancer and can 
they, they might just not go for another check. Well, exactly. Or they could ignore cancer symptoms, just kind of assuming that they don't have um, cancer because they've tested against tested negatively for it. Is this likely to be used in combination with other cancer diagnostics to begin with, so that it's used to confirm other suspicions of cancer, or is it, is it will it be used on a standalone basis? I think initially it'll be used alongside other cancer diagnostic techniques. So it's really non-invasive, it's just a blood test. You don't need to go through uh, a colonoscopy, you don't need to go through kind of invasive tests. Um, but I think the idea is to roll it out alongside generic general testing, so like testing for cholesterol at yearly physical exams, so they can detect things when um, there are no symptoms and it's just a kind of generic test. Thanks Freya, great information about the, the cancer research sector just in general. We're, we're going to move on now to our lead topic, uh, Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies more generally with our special guest. Uh, Ayush, Hello. Uh, another great intern. Yeah, welcome, welcome. So, there's been Bitcoin has been at the top of everybody's minds recently. Like, there's there's bearish terms, there's bullish terms being thrown around. Um, you know, the price goes up and down all the time. There's all these different technologies and news articles and companies that have opinions on it. Um, it's definitely one of the um, more talked about sagas in the, in the past, maybe two or three years. So. You've traded a lot of crypto in, in your time, and you, you study the, the sector pretty closely, Ayush. Um, so recently in the news, I actually think uh, two days ago or, or yep. yesterday, yep. Stripe, a, a, a very um, well-known sector leading payment, digital payments company, has withdrawn their support for uh, payments using Bitcoin. Uh, what do you think about this? Why are they shedding away from the coin? It's not surprising, to be honest, because Stripe is a progressive company, and they were one of the first adopters of Bitcoin. But then back then, Bitcoin was more akin to what it originally wanted to be, which was a medium of exchange, because it had low transaction fees, and it was also pretty quick. Because if it, in a merchant situation, you wouldn't want to wait 10 hours before you get money for a cup of coffee or anything, which is has been the case now. It's kind of a double-edged sword, because Bitcoin has gotten so popular that its network has become so congested that confirmations can take up to a day sometimes. And fees at some point in December even peaked to up to about 35 US dollars. I mean, would you imagine paying anything? Transaction fees worth up to $35, which basically yeah, just- Yeah, more than the thing you're buying. Yeah. Very interesting. So that's completely logical for Stripe to drop support of Bitcoin, at least as of now. Yeah, and uh, it's interesting. They, they've got, definitely gotten a lot of flack for it, but as you said, they are a pretty progressive company, but it, it is kind of maybe a shift in the greater trend that we're seeing. Although, so, yeah, go ahead. although they have said that they are keeping up with the Lightning development, and they're also looking at other alternatives, and they've already named, well, they've already named a few currencies, cryptocurrencies they're looking at mm. that they could implement, like Bitcoin Cash or Stellar. Sure, so staying active in the sector, yeah. but... Just letting go of the, the frothiest of the bunch. <laughs> so, you know, it's 2018, moving forward into the new year. What do you think is the future of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies? Or what do you think the coin of 2018 is, just generally? I think the coin of 2018 will carry on. Well, as is been the trend recently, will be Ethereum, which Why? has slowly been gaining market cap and market share over Bitcoin. Well, it, it's it's... Because it's not just limited to one function like Bitcoin at the moment kind of is, because it's more of a platform for 
anyone to build a decentralized application on. So the last I checked from the top 100 coins, about 70 were based on the Ethereum platform, which is a huge number, which just shows you the potential. And even as of now, not many of those coins have hit their main net or they haven't really launched completely. So this year is, is the year when, at least in Q1 and Q2, where a lot of these uh, projects will launch. So that will that should hopefully open the gate shed for Ethereum. And with Bitcoin not doing so well, that just opens the path for someone opens else. Opens the to path come for, for yeah, yeah, for new coins to, to come in. Yeah. One of the things that I think Ethereum has over some of the other coins is just the the underlying technology is just in general um, holistically more usable yeah. by the the, the the sectors programmers in general, right? So um, it doesn't use unspent transaction output, which we know takes tons of electricity and takes yeah. these big groups of miners. Uh, uses that account, uh, I think it's called account balance validation or something although, like that. Although um, although they still have their own fair share of scaling problems. It's not, not as acute as Bitcoin, but then they do have about four or five different solutions to try. Yeah, yeah. it's not as much of an Armageddon as it is for, yeah. for Bitcoin scalability-wise. And um, they, they also yeah. have the most active developer community. So if you check GitHub, they're... They're by mm. far most, the most of the coins active, are built yeah. on the Ethereum platform. Yeah, very interesting. And on on that, so how much of this is like any traditional market where first mover advantage and the ability to build market share to then pull in more people? How much is that are we seeing in a very new style market? So we're we just seeing sort of more traditional market forces being in play, but it's just a, a new type of technology. Is it is or, or are we seeing a new paradigm? Yeah, I mean. On the point of the first mover advantage being important, I think it has played a huge role because we can see Bitcoin as compared to like even Litecoin is not as technically as good. Well, it's the oldest one, but then because it was the first one now, most of the other coins are paired against Bitcoin, not the other coins, which just gives it a huge advantage in itself because if anyone wants to participate in the market, they will have to transact in Bitcoin. And yeah. Yeah, so I think the interesting thing with with first mover advantage, specifically in the crypto sector, is that it's not traditional like like when you, when you gauge technology or normal consumer goods market, it's it's more on on market share. The market share is is easier to kind of um, to kind of deduce and and um, and split up just from the amount of people buying your product or the amount of people talking about it when. In crypto, it's kind of more of the second point where a lot of these basically trade on public sentiment. So the market share is actually that much more inflated by the first mover advantage because it's the first one that everybody hears about. And I think yeah. we've heard that or, or we've seen that specifically with Bitcoin is that it basically like you've uh, you've heard a lot of um, financiers and, and people in the in the FS sector talking about how it basically um, it gets more valuable the more people know about it. Yep. So I think that's kind of one of the reasons um, that Bitcoin has kind of skyrocketed so high. But yeah, just just generally going going forward into into 2018, one of the things we saw yesterday actually was one of the the top ratings agencies in the USA. Debatable. <laughs> one one of the yeah, um, they're not one of the big three, obviously, but they're they're quite well known, and they released their own cryptocurrency ratings um, on a system not very different than the normal, you know. Um, Standard and Poor's, Moody's kind of kind of uh, debt rating system where you have A, B, C plus, B plus, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what do we think about this? Because I think it's kind of a not not the best way for the for the sector to go. 
To be honest, the reports weren't all live, but then from what I could see and from what I would, yeah, from what I can see, it's it's. I think it's just complete. It's just unreliable. I mean, they even had Dogecoin, which is a meme coin, which is a joke coin, as that's worth nothing. As yeah. B or C, and higher than a lot of coins that actually have a potential use. I mean, that just kills the credibility in my eyes quite a bit. And also, I don't know, a lot of the reasoning just seems a bit... Uh, it's just like they're trying to just get into the... But isn't it, it's just like, why it's just wanting the hype? It's just, as you said, it's like they're not the, one of the top big three. So this is yeah, they're, just exactly. on the bandwagon. And yeah. if you check their Twitter, they haven't had a post, single post in the last eight months. <laughs> I mean, before this, so they've just been doing nothing yeah they, they, months, yeah so. they, traditionally they, they yeah they haven't been one of the market leaders in their sector so they're trying to make a play that'll, that'll get them on and it, it certainly has has succeeded because mm. every time i google cryptocurrency now the weiss ratings come up um but i just think it's it's kind of the a, a signifier of a larger problem and and kind of the the cliched saying of um a good idea kind of taken too far right there are a lot of cryptocurrencies that are not getting the attention that they they should because there's Coins like this Dogecoin and the meme coin and, and all these other worthless things and, and uh, you know, frothy kind of coins like Bitcoin that, that are, you know, being rated higher or lower. And I just think it's it's the the public and, and generally the financial services sector trying to connect Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, the, the sector, with things that we know about when in, in general it, it's not really like anything we've seen before. And presumably we'll get to the stage where people who are launching cryptocurrencies will now go and pay for a rating, which is then exactly... Yeah, what exactly. It's what crashed the economy in, in 2008 yeah. Is, yeah. is, you know, um, the, the big three ratings, they were basically paid off by some of the banks and, and the, the, the government's rating their own debt. And I think that's literally what we're seeing here is that... And I, w I was having an interesting conversation with a friend last night, and he basically made the argument is that some of these countries that have very poor traditional... Um, Financial markets, financial markets, or or kind of net inflows of of um, a foreign investment, foreign investment, um, foreign domestic investment, will they now launch a cryptocurrency to kind of bypass the regulating body, right? Like my, my the friend the um, the example my friend used was Russia, right? Mm -hmm. Russia has the lowest sovereign credit rating I think in the world. They have like triple B minus, right? Mm -hmm. And they struggle continuously with getting FDI into their borders because of it could be with, you know, just government overreach. It could be with um, the poor poor health of their financial sector. But they've been tossing around, let's launch this crypto ruble to get to get away from the um the sanctions. I would say a lot of it is, is sanctions based. So the sanctions yeah. are restricted to the traditional ruble. So if you mm. launch a crypto ruble then you'd get around that. And I think the same has been said of Venezuela. So you're looking yeah, at absolutely. sort of second and third tier countries which are looking to circumvent things for their own, own ends. And I think that's when it starts getting dangerous for investors as well because they don't then get the protection. Yeah, exactly. Is, is the reason why, why investors are allowed to to take these big three kind of credit and, and debt ratings is because they're based on decades and decades of, of, of payoff and, and just financial history. So, and, and then Weiss comes in and, and gives some of these... These coins that have been around for less than a year have very little market caps. Um, like you just said, Dogecoin is a complete joke. <laughs> and even the, the founders have come out and said, Dogecoin is a joke, don't yeah. in, don't invest in it. But that's, yet the, that's because they don't hold any anymore. Yeah, exactly. They don't hold anymore. So now all of a sudden, any any ignorant investor who comes along and looks at the Weiss ratings is just in, in complete, you know, no man's land, as, as they yeah. would say. So I, I think it's just kind of a, a, a larger trend of... of 
the the good idea taken too far and the sector I mean, almost eating itself. I don't know if you if you've heard about the recent collapse of BitConnect, which was quite a huge deal, which was mm. basically a Ponzi scheme running for the past year or two. Yeah. Yeah, it's. I mean, it. Th- th- those are very common, basically, in the ICO, and we've we've heard the the same kind of play out with some of the 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 cloud mining scams like Hashflare and, and different things like that, where um, investors would actually invest in a uh, mining operation and then get paid out. You, I don't know if it's dividends or or commission. Like a percentage or something. Yeah, a percentage of based on the coins that that come yeah. out of there, the 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 um the outputs they validate in the blockchain, but. Yeah, that, that's a that's a, a subject for another time. Um, so yeah, great conversation again today. Please let us know on on SoundCloud if you enjoy these episodes because we certainly have a lot of fun doing them. Um, thank you to all of our guests and follow us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Typhoon Buzz, follow us on LinkedIn, and tune into our website and SoundCloud for more of our podcast content and individual uh, thought leadership episodes. TyphoonConsulting.com. Thanks. See ya.